This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Imperial Beach is the southernmost beach town on the California coast. It's right up against the Mexican border. Former Mayor Serge Dedina describes it this way. It's the last really blue-collar, funky beach town left in Southern California. We're a majority-minority community. It's four square miles surrounded by water, really on all four sides. It's not exactly an island, but Imperial Beach was developed in the early 1900s, and it's built on filled-in mudflats, surrounded to the south by the Tijuana Estuary and to the north by the wetlands of of South San Diego Bay. And of course, to the west, there's the Pacific Ocean. Dedina has seen some very high tides surge on Imperial Beach over the years, but it was one day in the winter of 2018 that sticks most in his mind— Forecasters had predicted king tides, those super high tides that coincide with a new or full moon. So the surf was very short interval, 8 to 10 foot. I saw something I hadn't really seen in a long time or something I'd seen during hurricane swells in the tropics. The ocean was angry. And with my lifelong friend, Robert Stabenow, who was the lifeguard chief, we'd been spent the last 45 years surfing these waves, lifeguarding together. And then he saw these wall of water coming at us, just like this wall of water that I was actually filming, and then just got enveloped in it. That's the sound that Dedina recorded of that wall of water. He was at the south end of the beach, where the streets and developments end, and he watched the seawater come up over the dunes, flood a parking lot, and flow into the neighboring estuary. A lot of guys were like, you should block it up, and one guy started trying to shovel sand into it. But I've seen California state parks, they get bulldozers and they they bulldoze up the berms to stop flooding. And this year we had some big surf and it just wiped it all out overnight. Dedina says Imperial Beach is lucky to have some natural estuaries that can absorb some of the flooding. However, some estimates show the Pacific Ocean rising more than six feet by the next century. Dedina says Imperial Beach could see a one-third of the town disappear in the coming decades. Now, those king tides and coastal flooding that Serge Dedina experienced as mayor forced him to switch his focus from town improvements, like fixing the library and putting in new sidewalks, to investing in cleaning up and preparing for future king tides. Similar sudden rethinking is happening up and down California's 1,200 miles of coastline. If you turned California on its side and stretched out those 1,200 miles of coastline, it would reach from New York City all the way to Little Rock, Arkansas. It's that long and that varied. Which is why there are lessons from California's changing relationship with its coastline for everyone who lives near rising water anywhere. Rosanna Shaw is an environmental reporter for the Los Angeles Times, where she focuses on the coast. In 2020, she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in explanatory reporting for her work covering rising sea levels. And she has a new book now. It's called California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. Rosanna, welcome to On Point. Hi, Magna. So, first of all, let's take a little virtual journey from uh, the, the tip of the Southern California coast all the way uh, to the Northern California coast where it borders with the state of Oregon. So that first, I don't know, couple of hundred miles from, let's say, the Mexican border to a little bit north of Los Angeles, what is the coastline like there? 
Yeah. And I, oh my goodness, really appreciated hearing Serge Dedina's reflections just now out of Imperial Beach. And just, I think, you know, talking about Southern California alone, I, I think of that from Santa Barbara all the way to Imperial Beach. And that's some of like the most iconic coastline in California, right? Like we think of Santa Monica, we think of Malibu and, you know, we've got these images of wide, flat, sandy beaches, some cliffs if you go down along San Diego, lots of estuaries and river plains, but it, it's almost like we are blind to this looming disaster of sea level rise because so much of it is sunshine filled and the way we've kind of altered our environments make us think that, hey, the beach is going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. So we have those iconic sandy beaches in Southern California. What does it change into as you move further north? Yeah, more cliffs. I mean, I think most folks can conjure an image of Big Sur, the Monterey Bay. And then as you go further north, I mean, San Francisco, folks in San Francisco think they're in Northern California, but there's like another <laughs> six, seven hours of driving north of San Francisco. So the Sonoma Coast, I call it Malibu North. Also, you know, amazing cliffs that like plummet straight into the ocean, cobble beaches, really cool rock formations. And then, you know, further north, you have Mendocino, Humboldt, Del Norte County. And that's where it gets really, you know, kind of similar to the landscapes of the Oregon coast. Meaning more cliffs, different kinds of forests, uh, things like that. Yes, the redwoods. Thank you for yeah. reminding me. I feel like the minute you hit Santa Cruz, you're like, oh my God, there are forests right by the ocean. Yeah, it gets pretty rocky also up there. And I just want to note for everyone that as you move north, the water, the Pacific gets much colder. So there isn't year round <laughs> swimming. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cold in Southern California too. It's not like the Atlantic. Okay. Well, the reason why I wanted to ask that is because. Um, The geology and ecology of the California coastline is quite varied, which means that even though everyone is having to face a future of much higher ocean, um, the ways they might have to deal with it are different. So can you then describe to me, we talked about the natural features uh, of the coastline. What about the human features, the communities? Like, How would you describe what they're like in various places on the coast? Yeah. And, you know, there are so many interesting communities up and down the coast. I mean, you were saying it's 1200 miles long and, you know, each of these places have their like own landscapes and histories and problems and social histories and the way we developed. And, you know, I'm thinking about Imperial Beach. It's, as you said, surrounded on three sides by water, by the bay, the Tawana River and the ocean. So that's a unique situation for that community. And, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's interesting because as I was thinking about just the, through the course of my reporting, how to tell the story of the California coast, you know, on the one hand, all these communities are so different and have their own kind of sets of concerns and values and priorities and what they're afraid of. On the other hand, I mean, the ocean knows no bounds, right? Just because you build a seawall in one town doesn't mean that at the end of that town boundary, the ocean just stops. And and so thinking about how to piece together and think about this broader landscape while also attending to kind of, you know, the communities, for example, along the San Francisco Bay shoreline and communities that, you know, are placed on top of former toxic waste sites versus mm. Guna Beach, some of the most expensive real estate 
in the country where, you know, someone might own two multi-million dollar homes next to each other so that no one ever blocks their ocean view. I mean, it, the range is truly incredible <laughs> in California. And I think really just figuring out how all these people belong into one conversation about the future of this very, very varied and dynamic landscape has been truly interesting. Mm-hmm. So help me understand something, though. I guess it, this is not unique to California at all, um, but I'm wondering if there's a story behind why um, so much of so or so many coastal communities in California are built right, basically right up to the waterline or as close as um as they can get. And they've been, you know, they've been there for decades upon decades upon decades. Is there a particular reason for that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, A, our human condition seems to, you know, throughout history, we've just been drawn to the water. There's something about living at the edge of like, you know, just the edge between where land meets the most massive body of water on the planet. There's something really magical about that. And I think, you know, anywhere you look, there are coastal communities. It's where we build our harbors. It's where, you know, historically our trade centers are. And in California, I mean, one of the most fascinating fun facts I learned in the course of my reporting is that our like peak development in the post-World War II era coincided with this blip in the cycle called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, where basically sea level rise got suppressed for a couple decades because of like the way the ocean and atmosphere interact. Like, I mean, we talk a lot about El Nino, La Nina in California. So that's kind of a climate cycle that folks are familiar with, but there's also the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And basically during like the quote unquote quiet periods of the cycle, the winds pull essentially the warmer water offshore and then the cold water kind of inhabits the areas closest to the shoreline. And, you know, if you think about it, warm water expands, cold water takes up less space. So we have this sea level rise suppression just at the point when we were building, you know, the California coast as we know it today, settling kind of the shoreline and our population bloom. I Uh mean, it just, it just, it's fascinating because I think of it today and it's like, we kind of built right to the water's edge, but the water's edge was so much farther right. than and now the water is trying to move in. That mm-hmm. is really interesting. Can we, we've just got about a minute till our first break? Do you know if the if there was a sort of a, a adequate understanding of that particular um, oscillation of sea level um, at the time the surge in development happened, or were people just like, "Wow, the water is great. It's perfect. It has been for a couple of years. So let's build." I think we were pretty blinded to the forces of the ocean back then. And I mean, I would say we still are today. This idea that we can fix, you know, quote unquote, line in the sand through hardened infrastructure, through our coastal highway, through seawalls, through entire neighborhoods and cities. I mean, that idea totally is in conflict with the fact that our coastline is essentially meant to move. I mean, if you go out to the beach, the tide line is never the same twice. And just not recognizing that and building our development in a way that is counter to this natural dynamic process along our shoreline is what's got us into the situation in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking with Rosanna Shaw this hour. She's environmental reporter for the Los Angeles Times and author of California Against the Sea. And we're talking about lessons that California has for anyone who lives near rising water. 
We'll be back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're speaking with Rosanna Shaw, environmental reporter for the LA Times and author of California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. Uh, okay, so Rosanna, let's pick up on that vanishing coastline part. Can you describe some of the changes in some of the communities uh, that you've reported on that have occurred in the past even just couple of years regarding where the water is, the shape of the coastline, the integrity of the homes right on the coast, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we were just talking about fixed lines in the sand that we have drawn between ocean and what we want to call land. And, you know, you said this at the beginning, but the, the numbers are pretty stark. We're looking at as much as six, maybe seven feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. And the consensus at the moment among state agencies in California is to prepare all our communities and infrastructure for three and a half feet of sea level rise by 2050. Three and a half feet by 2050 is not that far into the future. And, you know, to put things into perspective, when I first started, you know, looking into this, I, I was like, what does one foot of sea level rise look like? And I so I find it helpful to imagine that generally speaking, for every one foot of sea level rise, the ocean actually moves about 300 feet inland. So that's like an entire football field. So think about that and like the coastline that you know it today and what 300 feet inland would look like per foot of sea level rise. And, you know, the in terms of communities, like I'm thinking about Capitola in Santa Cruz or just outside of Santa Cruz. And it's this funky, really cool little beach town with these colorful, iconic apartment buildings our condo is right on the sand, literally right on the sand. And it's kind of buttressed by the seawall that's barely ankle high. And it was built in the 20s. I think it was one of the first condos actually to be built along the coast in California. And they go for, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And I, I see it on Instagram all the time. I mean, the, the, these, again, are like iconic places in California. And back in early 2020, I was walking this stretch of coast with a renowned coastal geologist in Santa Cruz, Gary Griggs. And we were both kind of looking at <laughs> this town and kind of the, the the homes right on the beach. And we were both thinking this will probably go underwater one day. And I don't think we 
either of us thought that one day would be less than three years later. I mean, with the storms that happened earlier this year, it was like back to back to back swells and rain and flooding from the river at the creek as it was going towards the ocean, but the ocean was pushing in and the creek had nowhere to go. And yeah, it became the poster child earlier this year for sea level rise in California, for flooding in California. And it's just, it's truly stunning because we we think this is an issue that is years or decades from now. And, you know, I hear the term slow moving disaster so much in the sea level rise space, but this is an issue that's happening now. I mean, you know, seven feet by six or seven feet by the end of the century. Yeah, that sounds kind of apocalyptic and so far off in the future that feels like sci-fi. But I mean, it's just, we're at this threshold where just a little bit of something else, as we compound all these factors, you know, add an El Nino year, a big winter swell, and just a higher than normal tide. And we really do get this flooding in communities today, but we are not prepared for that. Huh. So just to be clear, those condos that you were looking at are gone now? No. So they, I mean, it, the flooding was pretty bad, but it just, the ocean just swept through it. And if you, you know, go back through kind of the archives on Instagram, on, you know, online videos, it's just the waves just swept right through. It was like the tide. <laughs> so the, the ocean just went right through it and it carried debris and sand and the, the homes got pretty battered and the ocean, again, like moved many um, hundreds of feet inland, it looked like. And it just, I, I just, you know, President Biden and Gavin Newsom did their press conference there earlier this year. It was like the backdrop to, again, like all of the disaster that happened this past winter in California storms. So, you know, what's interesting. It's almost as if California um, and its coastal communities, because like you, like you said, because of the time in which they were really built up in that uh, that other uh, oceanic cycle where there was actually a suppressed sea level rise, um, have had it really lucky <laughs> until until recently. And maybe that luck has, has sort of, uh, until now, lulled um, communities into thinking that uh, what was beautiful in the past will be beautiful forever. I mean, that is quite different than... You know, I'm thinking of the Gulf Coast of the United States or a lot of the eastern seaboard uh, that gets hit with hurricanes a lot yeah. every year, I, right? So, so well, for California, so long, yeah, I would Cal- say we don't get hurricanes and we're not Florida, but I live in Los Angeles and we just had our first hurricane in the century a couple weeks ago, Hurricane Hillary. So that, that's also a reality that's happening more and more so today. But I wonder if that means that California is suddenly waking up and having to catch up with the kind of change in mindset that's been um, not exactly a fact of life because people on the Gulf Coast and the East can be very stubborn too, um, but a reality that disturbance and disaster is going to be um, a new critical part of the way of living there. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, I mean, like, like let's take like you know Louisiana or um, Miami. I mean, these are places that are in the news so often when it comes to sea level rise and flooding and disasters. I mean, Houston got hit so hard with flooding a couple years ago. And what's fascinating to me in those places is. Okay, so now we see what it looks like when a community gets hit by disaster and we didn't plan ahead. But then the rebuilding process, this idea of like what resilience actually is and this idea that, okay, we just got hammered by nature and we shall rebuild stronger, but exactly kind of the way we had it 
before. Like that is something that I'm also, you know, hoping to expand our way of thinking about. And, and that's kind of happening in California too. Okay, so if the ocean moves in, if we just got hit by water, is the response to just build a higher wall? Is the response to rebuild the communities that got washed away in the same place that we now know water is trying to move back into? And so I, I think those conversations are happening in other communities along other coastlines. But again, it's like, are we being imaginative enough? Are we being forward thinking enough? And also like for the folks who did lose their home, you know, how are they getting taken care of? Mm. I, the, the, the chaos that has ensued after a disaster is such a glimpse into the future for so many other communities. And I think in California right now, we're looking at what's happening in all these other places. We're starting to feel it like in Capitola. But again, like we can do so much to prepare ahead of time. If only we started that conversation now, but that starting that conversation now is scary. Like what happened in Imperial Beach yeah. and yeah, translating that, 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 that space between, okay, we know that we don't need to necessarily change tomorrow, but if we started tomorrow or today, we could stave off a lot of just pain and disaster, you know, before the disaster actually hit. Right. Well, so in your book, you're hitting on something very, very important. Um, and that is the way we talk about this word resilience, right? Because mm-hmm. because the way it's defined, it, it's, it that helps guide the kind of policies we're, we are going to build around or create around, um, you know, coping with with climate change and sea level rise. But as you suggest, maybe we ought to think a little differently about how we uh, we conceive of resilience. So on that point, Rosanna, we reached out to Charles Lester. He's director of the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm sure you know him very well. And he's spent the last 30 years working on and thinking about the California coast. And he talks about the notion of resilience. And he told us, it really starts with the idea of systems. It's very much rooted in a scientific framework where people are analyzing a system, you know, a chemical or physical or some kind of engineered system, and there's a disruption to it. And the question becomes, okay, how resilient is that system to that disruption would call a system resilient if it could recover and get back to its functioning of what it was doing, right, without a collapse or a failure of some sort. So a system that can be perturbed, but returned to its previously functioning state. Now, of course, we also try to describe people as resilient, if they can manage hardship, life challenges, and bounce back to what they once were. But when faced with climate change, Lester suggests that we need to shift away from the goal of bouncing back. When the system itself is changing. So when you've got this complex system that has environmental forces and social forces and they're interacting, and that's what we're talking about along a dynamic shoreline, right? People doing things along an environment that's inherently dynamic. But now you've got this change happening that is really um, causing a, a phase shift in that system. So the sea level is going up now at a higher rate than it did before. What does that mean for the functioning of the system? And might it be the case that to to be resilient isn't a question of trying to recover what we used to have in that system before, 
but what could we have in the system that will be right so because there's so much change happening in components of that system it doesn't make sense to say uh well resilience means um building back to the condition of before and surviving and continuing to function because the other changes in the system are so great that you're not going to be able to do that so as i hear it what he's describing there is we can no longer live in a world where we presume our current steady state is the thing we're going to bounce back to, especially given the rapidity with which climate change is accelerating. But, you know, Rosanna, I, I don't think I'm seeing much evidence yet of that kind of um, shift in thinking happening when it comes to the f- the first lines of defenses that we see coastal communities turning to when, you know, the oceans uh, reach ever closer to homes every year, right? I mean, you've written about seawalls, sand replacement. Are any of these me- things, you know, truly effective for the long run? I mean, yeah, what you just named, like seawalls and sand replacement, punishment are hard and softer approaches of kind of the same mindset of just trying to maintain the world as we know it and just building off what Charles just said I mean with resilience it's like when we try to protect and bounce back to what we had I mean that's implying that we think that, that what we have today is what we actually want. But have we actually taken a step back to examine, okay, is the world as we know it today actually the best that we could do? And, you know, as I talk to so many of these different communities up and down the coast, there are communities that, you know, have been overburdened with kind of our industrial pollution, our industrial infrastructure. There are just so many disparities and inequities and pain in our social systems today. And again, like if we are just trying to bounce back to the status quo, I just that I just feel like that is such a yeah, I mean it's 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 just this question like, is this actually what we want to protect and maintain and rebuild? Or can we take, you know, rather than taking these disasters and these looming disasters as a threat to our systems, like can we actually take this as an opportunity? to re-examine what's not working and how do we redo this? How do we reset? How do we expand upon this world that, you know, has a lot of room for improvement and change? It seems to me, though, that um, for many of the communities, and I'm thinking of the wealthiest people in those communities on any coastline, including California, the answer to your question is, is this what we want to protect? Do we want to protect the status quo? The answer is yes, right? Mm. And so therefore, uh, those folks often have quite a bit of influence in especially local decision making. Have you seen that in um, in communities you've reported on? Yeah, and I would say that, you know, the coastal real estate in California is some of the most valuable real estate in the world, right? And I think for folks who are wealthy, they hold disproportionate power and they are louder in many of these conversations along our coast. But, you know, the question is, I mean, I mean, it's, you know, not to get too radical here. Like, again, we were, we've been talking about kind of this idea that 
we have fixed lines in the sand, but the coastline is inherently meant to change. And it's this dynamic space that we have made undynamic and we have tried and tried and tried to hold the line. And, and what are we trying to protect? I mean, for a lot of these places and in a lot of these conversations, it's property lines. And I mean, the very notion of property lines and boundaries is, you know, inherently a very Western notion. And I think that it, again, is just in, there's such a disconnect with the reality that the ocean is moving in, that the coastline mm. is moving with the ocean and we're supposed to move with it. Yeah. Can you hold that thought, Rosanna? Because I want to come back to that in a second. But um, I'd also like to just use more of your your you know first person reporter's experience here. Can you tell us about a specific community that's kind of dealing with this right now? There's several that you've written about in the book. I'm just picking one here at random. How about Pacifica? Yeah. And <laughs> Pacifica gets it pretty hard sometimes being in the news every time there's a big storm and especially with how dramatic the waves hit the bluffs. And yeah, you know, the other thing that's so different in California versus the East Coast is that we have homes and communities on cliffside, on top of cliffs and bluffs that used to have a lot of sand buffering the cliffs, but now it's just waves carving right at the, at the <laughs> waves carving right at the cliffs and just like entire collapses when there's just too much water. And I mean, it's just, it's Pacifica is a great, great, it's not the right word. Pacifica is just such a sobering window into what so much of the rest of California will experience in greater frequency. And I think what's, it's interesting because like, you know, the word manage retreat hasn't come up at all yet. And it's, Mm -hmm. that that's like one of the most fraught talking points and notions again like, and manage retreat essentially is just to acknowledge that the ocean is moving in and that we're going to have to make room for the ocean at some point but what does that mean for our existing infrastructure and properties that are currently in the way of the ocean that will at you know at some point need to be relocated for safety and just for reality's sake and i mean so the term manage retreat and you know i, I feel like there is a very these words need a rebrand because retreat in itself feels like we're failing. It's, it's all, again, a very American notion to not retreat, but that has been hugely controversial in this town. And the mayor back in like pre-2018 actually tried to get ahead of this issue and ended up getting completely booted from the city council. And with the, it, it's been really fraught like ever since yeah. just back in, well, on how to the future. Sorry, Roseanne, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. It's just I have to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to take the pieces of what we've discussed today about how dynamic coastlines actually are and uh, human beings' relationship with them and the economic drivers and all that. And we're going to see what lessons California has for the rest of the nation. So hang on with me for just a minute. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. 
Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and today we're speaking with Rosanna Shaw. She's an environmental reporter for the LA Times and author of the new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. Uh, Rosanna, as I mentioned, I want to be sure to uh, take the lessons from California and see how coastal communities everywhere uh, might be able to apply them. So I want to bring A.R. Siders into the conversation. She's director of the Climate Change Hub and professor on climate change adaptation at the University of Delaware. Professor Siders, welcome to you. Hello. So first of all, compare uh, a little bit between what you've heard from Rosanna about how um, the California's coastal communities are beginning to have to change rather rapidly, to the kinds of changes that you already see taking place, you know, where where you are in, in, uh, in the Northeast? Yeah. Climate adaptation uh, is known for being very local because it, there's always local changes in the hazards you're facing and the particular context and history and, you know, the goals that people want, which Rosanna mentioned, you know, what is what do we want to build? What do we want to kind of preserve? But on another level, the conversations are, are very much the same, right? They're very hard to think about what change looks like. Right? It's very hard for us to envision a future uh, that is different from the past, right? To, to acknowledge that the future that's coming isn't going to look like it has been and that we need to do something different to react to that. And then, of course, you have the sort of the same economic, the same power dynamics playing out uh, across the country and, and around the world, really. Uh, so a lot of the things that are happening in California at that sort of high level are the same conversations that are happening elsewhere. Mm. You know, in a sense, uh, it's hard to actually blame uh human beings, and I'll limit our analysis to humans in the United States, for that narrow window of perspective, right? Hmm. Because, um, you know, the, the, the population boom in this country that, for example, that Rosanna described has happened in a very, very, very minute window of time in comparison to the kinds of timescales that we might be able to measure really broad-based uh, dynamic shifts in, in coastal environments. And I want to say that because it helps to me understand why we have a really hard time of Im- imagining what the future could be because we've got such a na- narrow window of perspective uh, in the recent past about what the present of a coastline could be. So how do we change our mindset to cope with that uncertain literal physicality of a coastline in the future when deciding what to do to be resilient. Yeah, it's it's a great point. So humans are we're not very good at thinking about risk. Yeah, and we can see this everywhere, right? People we overestimate uh, big risks and we underestimate the small risks that are more certain. So we're not good at thinking about risk, and we're also not good about thinking about how our actions today lead up to big risks in the future. Right? I sort of constantly make jokes uh, comparing, but it's this idea of you know I need to eat my broccoli today in order to avoid that heart attack fifty years from now. Like th- that's hard for people to put those together, and it's the same way that you know we need to take action today in order to avoid catastrophic flooding or wildfires or other issues in the future. And it's very hard to make those hard choices today for a future payoff. And so, yeah, like we're 
we struggle with that uh, as humans to try to, to do that. And it's not about blaming people for that very human response to it. It's about trying to create structures and incentives that help people make better choices. So it's about putting planning processes in place that make people think on longer timescales. It's about requiring people to think about their values explicitly so that they can see where there's a disconnect between their current actions and the future. It's about basically all the same psychological tricks that people use to try to diet, right, and make themselves make better choices on a daily basis to get that future health outcome. We can use some of those same tricks when we're thinking about how do we get people to think about how today adds up to that long-term future. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it's not about blaming people for having that issue. It's about putting those systems in place. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for, for that clarification, because the specific things that you just mentioned on how to build those systems are very, very useful. Uh, those Potent ideas, though, are facing kind of the hurdle of money, the demand for instantaneous, you know, solutions. Because I keep thinking about seawalls, right? The first, the first time when people start thinking, "Oh, we got to do something because we're getting flooded now every single year," the almost always the first idea is, "Let's build higher." seawalls. So let's, can we take that specific example and lay out a, a process or a future for me that uh, makes seawalls not the first and sometimes only solution that, that communities turn to? Absolutely. And this is a very difficult one because it's a, seawalls are something that are, are known and and they appeal to people because they can understand them, right? My home is flooding. Put a wall between me and the water. That is something they can understand. And any politician can point to and say, look, I did that, right? I built that wall. I'm keeping you safer. And so they appeal to a lot of things we want. In terms of getting around that, though, I think this is where we have to have that explicit conversation about goals that we want. So uh, when I talk to communities or even give presentations and conferences, I like to start with a couple things. Um, I jokingly, but not even jokingly, I ask people to write a haiku about the future that they want. So write a haiku or a limerick or the poem of your choice about the future that you want. But explicitly send, spend a few minutes thinking about what the future is that you you might want. And, and the reason I use poetry is because there's some uh, research on how that helps people deal with anxiety and brings out their creativity side of things. But then also I show images of seawalls. Right? And so I talk about the fact that on the East Coast, about 14% of the U.S. East Coast is already armored. Right, already has seawalls or riprap or breakwaters or something built up on it. And I show them these you know, pictures of these big walls and I say, is this the future that you want? And most people look at it and say, no, that's not the coast that I want. And we'll say, all right, well then if you don't want a coast that has walls all over it, let's stop building walls. Yeah. And so actually physically visualizing it can be really important. And this is where we can use all kinds of tools. There's 3D virtual reality viewers that can show you different options of what the coast can look like. There's 3D models you can do on maps. There's art, uh, performance artists are doing a great job of thinking about the future and trying to visualize that. So I think anything we can do to get people to to visualize that and to put their goals into words uh, and make them more explicit is going to be really helpful. And then also thinking longer term. So, uh, you know, one of the planners from Virginia Beach talked about this, where they do their coastal planning. And he says it was really important that they picked 2100 as their goal for their planning, because then it's not about you and me, right? We're not going to be here (laughs) in 2100. So it's not about us. It's not about my property values. It's not about where I'm going to live. It's about what I'm leaving for the next generation. It's about the community I want to build for them. And suddenly that opens up a very different space of conversation. So I think there's a lot of tools that we can use here, but it comes back to what you were saying about, you know, it, it needs money, that needs time, that needs resources. And a lot of places, even... Even politicians with the best will in the world, you know, 
they're thinking about things like, you know, right in the very beginning, right? The mayor's thinking about schools and sidewalks mm -hmm. and fire departments. And they have a long list of things they need to think about. And climate change is just one of those. And so it's trying to help them build the capacity to make this an issue they can spend time on to have these hard conversations. Yeah. And perhaps that capacity is going to come um, de facto because the the emergency is getting ever larger, right? Every yeah. every year. But I really, really appreciate that, right? Because sometimes it's hard for folks who aren't immersed in, in this world to really envision what a different pathway would be to lead to, to different mm. solutions regarding climate change. So thank you for that. I can see more clearly uh, ahead of us now. Um, also, by the way, just I got to get this out of my system. Those seawalls sometimes, they have the uh, the uh, incidental effect of blocking sand transport down a coastline, yeah. which then causes all sorts of problems as well, speaking of the dynamic coast that we have. But mm -hmm. that's for another day. Roseanne, yeah. <laughs> let, let me go back to you here. So in terms of this different way of thinking about planning, I'm sure there have to be communities in California that are engaging with that. You mentioned manage retreat uh, a, a minute or two ago. Are there sort of more successful um, examples you have of communities that are uh, thinking through manage retreat or other policies better than poor Pacifica that we beat up on a little bit earlier? Yeah. And just real quick on seawalls, someone once told me very to the point, seawalls kill beaches. So if you want a beach at a location, the seawalls, like don't build a seawall because that's going to kill the beach. That just totally clicked for me. And, you know, in Southern California, more than a third, like almost 40% of our coastline is already armored with some form of hardened infrastructure. So this is definitely, you know, someone once told me that seawalls are a coastal crisis in Southern Cal in California. And yeah, like, so in terms of communities that are thinking about this transition that Siders was just talking about. I mean, I'm thinking of the community marina along Monterey Bay, and you know they have always been pretty forward thinking about their development and never building too close to the edge and creating this incredible amount of space in the inner tidal zone. So there's like towering beach dunes and wetlands in marina that are still intact. And you know, in a lot of California, like more than 90% of our wetlands have been destroyed or altered for the sake of development. I mean, like a lot of San Francisco is built on a former marsh. I would mm -hmm. say that the same for Boston and a lot of other places on the East Coast. And with Marina, I mean, so they are, they. I mean, they have it relatively easier in the sense that they have less infrastructure to manage retreat in the future, but they, you know, aren't afraid of it. So their city council started the process of identifying which properties and critical infrastructure along the coast might need to move or be relocated further inland in the coming decades as the ocean moves in. And rather than have this be just like a non-starter conversation, you know, they're broaching this conversation of like, okay, we've identified this as a potential at-risk parcel in the future. We're not saying when, we're not, you know, condemning you to do right now, but like, okay, let's build in these triggered phased checkpoints. Five years from now, let's touch base. Or if this critical parking lot for the beach starts to flood 25% of the year, let's start to talk. Um, you know, and I think that's interesting because again, like we know that at some point in the future, change is going to happen. We also know that that's not necessarily the most tangible or desirable thing to do right now. And it's not politically, you know, yeah. the easy thing. Yeah. Um, so can I just jump in here? Because these are the, both the things that you you two just shared with us actually um, seem 
truly feasible and so therefore, you know, actionable. Um, but it, it, it's giving me hope. <laughs> I have to say, it's giving me hope. But beneath this, something that you've mentioned a couple of times, Rosanna, and Professor Siders, and know you, you think about a lot too, is that we have to break out of this mindset of having these static communities in what is very fundamentally a dynamic environment. So thinking of ourselves as part of a natural system that changes versus a part from the natural system that changes. And, and to that, there are you know, groups of Americans that have actually been living in this way for hundreds, uh, even thousands of years and thinking about specifically beliefs and practices of indigenous people uh, who wants to manage and steward the, stewarded the land we're talking about. So we spoke with someone who's doing just that. I'm Angela Mooney Diarcy. I'm a Hashimim. Our ancestral territories are on the coast in what's also known as Orange County, California. Mooney DRC is executive director of the Sacred Places Institute for Indigenous Peoples. It's an L.A.-based organization that works to protect sacred indigenous lands, waters, and cultures. And she says people are generally surprised to hear that at one point, 180 different Native nations lived across what's California today, and a third of those tribes lived on the coast. What I encounter a lot in climate adaptation and mitigation, sea level rise type spaces is a real disconnect or just total lack of understanding of the relationship between colonization and where we're at today. For all of California indigenous communities, but particularly those of us from coastal nations, the first moment of that climate crisis was hundreds of years ago when the Spanish you know, soldiers, military and priests you know, stepped foot on these shores. Indigenous peoples here had a very different relationship with place. It was one that was not extractive, but was in actual relationship. Mooney DRC says it's imperative that Indigenous voices are included in decision-making about climate change adaptation. Because, she says, Indigenous belief and practice offer a completely different way of how to think about the land and the ocean. If everyone looked at the ocean as a living entity, as a relative with whom we're supposed to have a respectful and reciprocal relationship, I think that the decisions made for what happens in those waters would be quite different. I think we'd see a lot less uh, environmentally damaging and extractive practices in these places. I think we'd see a lot more care and attention to uh, supporting native plant regeneration and restoring ecological balance in these places. You know, because I'm not saying to say that there would be a separation or that these wouldn't be places where people interact. I just think that we'd see a really different iteration with how people interact with these coastal spaces. Angela Mooney DRC, founder and director, executive director of Sacred Places Institute for Indigenous Peoples. Now, we've only got about, about a minute left in this conversation, unfortunately, but Professor Siders, um, Rosanna actually tipped us off about this earlier when she said we have to rethink our very relationship to the land and the ocean. Is this not an opportunity, in a sense, to do just that? Absolutely. Many of the, the issues we're talking about are things that people have been thinking about for 
you know, smart planning, for for urban growth, for uh, architects who have been thinking about this in you know, creative ways of, of doing architectural design. And climate change is really just one catalyst, right, to get people to think about how we should live differently. And it's the reason that we can think about climate adaptation from a point of fear, where we say, how are we going to avoid these harms? Uh, and, you know, that can be motivating. But but it's also an opportunity to think about we want to build something amazing and something better for ourselves, for the next generation to leave to the land. Let's be creative and ambitious about what that could look like rather than restricting ourselves to presuming that we have to maintain what we have right now. Wow. Well, so in a sense, uh, we could accomplish a lot if we change our perspective from being against the sea, which is for now what Rosanna had to title her book, to being, you know, humanity with the sea, I'd say. That that would that would get us a long way. But I want to thank both of you for this really terrific conversation today. A.R. Siders, Director of the Climate Change Hub and Professor of Climate Change Adaptation at the University of Delaware. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Rosanna Shaw, environmental reporter for the LA Times and author of the new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. Rosanna, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.